This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. You might remember headlines from a few years ago ringing alarm bells about a global antibiotic resistance crisis. The issue might not exactly be front and center while we were busy focusing on combating COVID-19, but the bacteria did not take a COVID break. These microbes kept working hard to outsmart the antibiotics designed to kill them. There's a number of factors driving the crisis, including antibiotic use in livestock, the general overprescription of antibiotics by physicians. In fact, about one in three antibiotic prescriptions in outpatient settings, like urgent care or emergency departments, one in three are unnecessary. And scientists can't keep up with developing new treatments needed to compensate for antibiotics that no longer work. It's a big game of catch-up. In the U.S., there are almost 3 million antimicrobial-resistant infections every year, and more than, uh, than 35,000 people die as a result. Joining me now to talk about some possible solutions to this vexing problem and answer your questions about antibiotic resistance are my guests. Let me introduce them now. Dr. Victor Nezzi, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, Dr. Victor Nezzi, professor of pediatrics and pharmaceutical science and faculty leader of the Collaborative to Halt Antibiotic Resistant Microbes. That's at UC San Diego, San Diego based in San Diego, California. And Dr. Eddie, Eddie Stenyum. Executive Vice Chair of Medicine at the University of Colorado, based in Aurora, Colorado. Welcome to Science Friday. Good afternoon, Ira. Thank you for dedicating time. Nice to have you. And we want to hear from our listeners. What are your biggest questions about antibiotic resistance? Have you noticed a change in prescribing habits at the doctor's office? Have you ever suspected you'd been given an antibiotic for a viral infection? Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at SciFry. Uh, let me begin with you, Dr. Neza. To start off, can you give us an overview of how antibiotic resistance occurs in the body? Well, um, bacteria, when they're exposed to a chemical antibiotic, can either be susceptible, meaning they're killed, or their growth is halted, or resistant, meaning they survive the exposure. And um, uh, exposing them to an antibiotic is a life-or-death selective pressure, and by Darwinian evolution, mutations occur in the bacterial population that can lead to a change in the bacteria so it no longer binds the antibiotic, mm. inactivates the antibiotic, so the drug doesn't work in the humans. Mm. So, Dr. Nizay, how does taking repeated rounds of antibiotics fit into antibiotic resistance? Well, uh, it's uh, a cumulative exposure. Uh, bacteria are very small. They're replicating every 30 minutes. So they have a tremendous mutation capacity. Each exposure to antibiotics, especially if the bacteria are not completely eradicated, mm. gives them an opportunity uh, to gain strength uh, and, um, and expand their resistance. This can spread in the communities uh, and create significant public health problems. So it's sort of a survival of the fittest among the microbes. The stronger ones stay alive while you knock off the weaker ones? Exactly. I don't, I don't think there's a better uh, uh, present example of Darwinian evolution. Hmm. You can do it right in front of your eyes in the laboratory. As I outlined, outlined, outlined in the introduction, 
There are several factors driving the antibiotic resistance crisis. Do we know how big a role each factor is contributing to the issues? So let me let me ask each one of you, uh, Dr. Stenyum. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and the answer is we don't know. There's a lot at play in terms of what is driving resistance. It's uh, antibiotic use in the hospital and its subsequent transmission of resistant pathogen. It's antibiotic use in the outpatient setting. All those emergency department, urgent care, primary care visits that receive antibiotics. It's antibiotics in livestock and subsequent development of resistance um, in livestock. And so it's all of these things taken together that is uh, really driving the crisis that we're in. Dr. Nize? Yes, and I think um, another point is that uh, historically, uh, we've relied on a single class of medicines as antibiotics, uh, these chemicals that have a direct action on the bacteria. And uh, I believe that we've become complacent and maybe not had as much innovation in the field of antibiotic medicine uh, that is necessary to most effectively treat uh, diseases. Mm. Um, and maybe we can take uh, some lessons from the advances in cancer therapy and other fields where they've harnessed the power of the immune system, develop more targeted uh, rather than broad-spectrum therapies, uh, and with a bigger arsenal of tools for the doctors, uh, we might uh, derive better patient outcomes and less selection for resistance. So you're focused on creating a more holistic approach to treating infection. If you think about it, uh, having an infection is not just that the bacteria had the potential to produce disease, but that the patient's immune system dropped the ball that day to allow the bacteria to spread deeper in the body. And what we're discovering is that you might think of alternatives to chemical antibiotics that kill the bacteria or poison the bacteria. Rather, you might understand the tools the bacteria is using to cause disease, we call these virulence factors, and try to disarm the bacteria An advantage of this kind of therapy is it would be specific for the individual pathogen by targeting its specific virulence factor and not have the adverse effects on all the beneficial bacteria that make up our human microbiome. And it would also reduce the selective pressure for resistance Hmm. on different uh, uh, bacteria in the body. You've also done some research about how antibiotics are developed in the lab, in the Petri dish. Why is the standard operating procedures for developing antibiotics falling apart? Is the Petri dish not good enough representative of how antibiotics work in the body? Yeah, if you think about it, um, the testing that we do to determine whether an antibiotic is effective, whether the bacteria is susceptible or resistant, is uh, done in a clinical laboratory on media that is designed to support the growth of the bacteria outside the body. It's basically brief broth and seaweed auger, really doesn't resemble the conditions inside the body. Hmm. And what we found is that if you test the very same antibiotics and bacteria under conditions that are more representative of the body that have the same salt conditions and pH uh, that are present in body fluids, you get different results. And we may be inadvertently uh, neglecting 
uh, or discounting certain antibiotic activities, ruling them out based on the laboratory test when they're effective in the body. Mm -hmm. Plus, this testing doesn't have any element of the immune system. And there's actually many antibiotics that collaborate with or synergize. They change the bacteria to render it susceptible to the immune system. And in fact, in this arena, we can repurpose many medicines that are used for other conditions like statins, cholesterol-lowering drugs, antiplatelet drugs, anemia drugs, and find that they change uh, the host-pathogen interaction, so to speak, to the advantage of the host and have therapeutic mm. benefit in clearing infections. You're saying they change the microbiome in our... Uh, that's another great idea. Rather than damaging the microbiome, we can support the microbiome. And there's actually probiotic uh, treatments uh, that have been shown to benefit, fortify uh, the barrier. Remember, all of us is not just a single life form. Right. We're really the mayor of a large community of beneficial microbes that live on or inside our bodies. And antibiotics damage the integrity and diversity of this have led to increased rates of obesity and autoimmune disease and, and allergy, uh, we should fortify that, look for therapies that don't disturb the microbiome, targeted therapies. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that description, being the mayor of a large <laughs> microbiome. Uh, Dr. Stenium, I want to talk a bit about the overprescription issue. We have known about this for a while, haven't, haven't we? I mean, I, we, we've been talking about it for decades here on, on this program. Why are doctors still overprescribing? Yeah, it, it is fascinating that we have been having this discussion for decades. Um, we've known that a large majority of, not large majority, but a, a large amount of antibiotics that are given in the outpatient setting are just inappropriate. They are either not needed, or if they are appropriate, many times they're given at the wrong dose or for the wrong duration, say 10 mm -hmm. days when five days would have been fine. And I think we're realizing that this is a much more complex issue than what we made it out to be. You know, for years it was, oh, we just need to educate our physicians and our nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. They just need to do better. We'll just do more education. And, and we find that it's, it's much more complicated than that. Hmm. And that um, it's not just sheer education. We have to deal with the newfound, you know, um, respect of patient satisfaction and patient pressure. We need to think about the time constraints that we're putting on our clinicians in busy urgent cares and ED where some clinicians feel that it's just quicker to be able to give an antibiotic and move on to that next visit. Um, we, we need to be able to manage all of these things and be able to design systems where clinicians feel they can take the time and explain to the patient why an antibiotic is, is not um, required and it's not gonna be beneficial and in many respects and many times be actually harmful. We have to be able to give them that space to do that where they're not worried about um, having to get to that next patient even quicker. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to provide them tools to make sure that they're certain of their diagnoses. And I think we saw this during the COVID pandemic to be able to give clinicians diagnostic tools to be able to put a, a label to the condition that the patient has. You have COVID or you have influenza to be able to take comfort in um, knowing what the patient has instead of just saying, oh, it's a virus, it's gonna run its course. So I think it's a much more complex problem. 
And just to Dr. Nazay's point is we need to continue to evolve in the diagnostic space, the therapeutic space, the behavioral and um, implementation science space to really um, move the needle on outpatient antibiotic prescribing. Because it really hasn't moved, in the, right. at least in the adult world, uh, for decades. Well, you, you also found that doctors understood antibiotic overprescription over to be an issue, but that it was the other doctors, not themselves, yeah. right? What, what, what happened yes. when you provided doctors with their own prescription rates? Right. And so um, in Intermountain Healthcare, where uh, I worked just most recently, um, we were able to take a, a, and do a large initiative in our urgent care network, which is a network of 38 urgent cares. And we were able to successfully reduce respiratory antibiotic prescribing significantly from 48% wow. down to about 30%. And part of that was being able to provide the clinicians their antibiotic prescribing rates and allow them to see that and allow them to see other people's data as well. We did this in an incredibly transparent manner where they could see their prescribing behavior and then also their peers in their clinics or across the system. And in many cases where they thought, oh, I'm just doing it better, when we were able to show them their data and allow them to compare it to peers and allow them to talk with peers that do it better to learn from them, how do they have these conversations with patients? We saw people move in the right direction in terms of antibiotic prescribing. Um, and in the end, not too many people were very upset about us showing their data to the rest of their, their colleagues because they could learn from them. Very interesting. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. We're talking about antibiotic resistance. Let's see if we can get a uh, call in before the break. Let's go to George in New Bedford, Mass. Hi, George. George, are you there? Well, let me, let me try hitting the button again. George, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi there. Go ahead. All right. I was wondering what the status of MRSA, the flesh-eating bacteria that was round and about in hospitals, etc. I haven't heard anything about it and its uh, uh, resistance to antibiotics lately. Hmm. Uh, gentlemen, well, who would like to tackle that one? Uh, I can speak from a scientific point of view. Go um, ahead. We certainly still have... Uh, MRSA is one of the leading antibiotic-resistant challenges. Uh, the rates are a little bit down uh, from their peak, and uh, a frightening uh, specter of resistance to vancomycin, one of our last-line antibiotics, uh, seems to have not fully materialized. However, um, uh, patient outcomes in treatment with serious MRSA infections have kind of stalled uh, we see very high mortality in uh, deep-seated infections like bacteremia and sepsis with staph-resistant and susceptible strains, um, which means we need better therapies. We also need a staph vaccine, uh, which has been um, a real uh, challenge for a long period of time. But it's in this arena where combination therapies uh, rapid diagnostics that let us know we're dealing with uh, a methicillin-resistant MRSA strain quickly, uh, combination uh, uh, drugs, therapeutic antibodies. Uh, you heard about monoclonal antibodies mm -hmm. during COVID. A beautiful paper came out uh, from the Victor Torres lab at NYU showing a multi-target uh, antibiotic uh, 
or antibody that neutralizes the toxins that the bacteria makes and can lead to better outcomes in staph infection. So a lot of reason for optimism, uh, but it's still a very prevalent uh, leading threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Stenium, is there one, and you know, is MRSA the top problem now with antibiotic resistance? Yeah, as a practicing infectious disease physician, I can tell you MRSA or MRSA is, is alive and well. Um, it is something we treat every day in the hospital. Um, and it certainly causes very significant morbidity and mortality uh, in our patient population. It's one um, bacteria that we have high concern for and agree that we need better therapeutics uh, for this particular um, severe infection. But other bacteria, such as gram-negative bacteria, these are bacteria that predominantly live in our gut. They cause urinary tract infections, can cause bloodstream infections, Mm. um, are really seeing an increase in drug resistance and can cause um, very significant mortality rates in our our patients um, and are really the concern um, of clinicians that are treating these patients um, in the hospitals. All right, we have to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about antibiotic resistance. If you'd like to join us, please, our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SITALK. What would you like to talk about? You make the call, but only if you make the call, 844-724-8255, or tweet us at SciFry. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. We're continuing our conversation about the global antimicrobial resistance crisis and its solutions with my guest, Dr. Victor Nizé, professor of pediatrics and pharmaceutical science and faculty lead of collaborative to, to halt antibiotic-resistant microbes that's at UC San Diego, and Dr. Eddie Stenyam, Executive Vice Chair of Medicine, University of Colorado, based in Aurora, Colorado. Our number, 844-724-8255. Let's see how many calls we can get in before we have to go. Catherine in Ithaca, New York. Hi there. Hi there. How are you? Hi. Go ahead. Um, My name is Catherine. I am a registered nurse. My specialty is end-of-life care, both hospice and palliative care. And it's been very disturbing to us as a profession to um, recently have um, patients that we are unable to keep comfortable because of the extent to which the FDA and other organizations have throttled down on opioids. I respect that um, the thought is that this will curb um, accidental overdoses. However, that has not borne out in reality. Um, the heroin-fentanyl combinations out on the street seem to be, and in fact are, a much more deadly combination. So it surprises, I, I do appreciate the efforts, these programs that are trying to bring awareness to prescribers about um, antibiotic misuse, but it surprises me that the FDA has not weighed in more heavily on the matter of um, overuse of antibiotics leading to antibiotic resistance. For example, there are many broad-spectrum antibiotics that can be obtained without prescription um, through um, uh, that are intended for veterinary use. Um, I wonder if your guests have any thoughts about why the FDA is not um, engaging in a more robust response to the issue of over 
um, availability of mm-hmm. antibiotics. Thanks for your call. Dr. Stenyum, can you tackle that? Yeah, Catherine, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I would say, you know, the FDA is in the business of approving medications for use in humans. And um, we have had very significant progress in curbing antibiotic misuse in the inpatient setting, in the hospital setting, because of some key um, regulations that have come through both CMS and the Joint Commission. These um, bodies oversee and regulate hospitals. And what we've seen is a a very significant increase in hospital-based antibiotic stewardship programs, which um, allow clinicians to better utilize antibiotics. We've seen an increase in these programs because of the advent of CMS and Joint Commission regulation. So we do have some um, policy-based um, mm-hmm. guidance on the inpatient side that has improved antibiotic prescribing. I think to your point, though, is we don't have any policies on the outpatient side um, to govern and oversee antibiotic prescribing. And there's work looking at incorporating payers into this discussion and how can we incentivize uh, clinicians through the payer mm-hmm. arm um, to better prescribe antibiotics. And I think as we move to a more value-based care model of um, payment structure, antibiotic overuse is going to be very front and center. Mm-hmm. We know me, that as yeah. antibiotic resistance go up, so does cost of health care. Let me see if I can get one more call on Lisa in Yuba City, California. Hi, Lisa. Hello, yes. Uh, we know that antibiotics are found in most every water system, and we know that when these antibiotics and other drugs co-mingle together, they, they, they morph into various complications. Um, but what we don't know is how the these complications are going to affect us in the future um how significant is that yeah yeah good question um i can take a crack at it uh victor um so um yes this is uh environmental uh uh release and exposure of antibiotics Uh, we highlighted uh, extensive use in agriculture as one source but also you can find it uh in the effluent of uh, the factories where they're making the antibiotics uh, and uh, levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria uh, are present uh, in uh, uh, countries like India and China where they are developing uh, the antibiotics and there's uh, uh, don't don't we flush them us. down the toilet ourselves and we, we fl- take them exactly and we flush them down the toilet ourselves so uh, wastewater detection uh, and its sensitivity and throughput made a big impact on our uh, management and staying one step ahead of uh, COVID epidemiology and the emergence of variants. Uh, this was uh, led uh, at our university by by Rob Knight as a, a model uh, that was adopted elsewhere. And I think we can take the infrastructure that we've developed there and focus it on the key antibiotic-resistant organisms and genes um, to um, get a good barometer, not just from sick patients in the hospital, uh, but uh, the presence of the genes in the community to uh, guide our prescription practices and target our interventions. Are you hopeful for antibiotic resistance and and antibiotics? Uh, uh, I think, you know, um, it's been said that... um, Infectious disease is the only specialty in medicine where 
we can reliably count on the drugs getting less effective over time and also new diseases emerging. Uh, We don't have a new high blood pressure disease and we don't expect our blood pressure medicines to lose effectiveness over time. Uh, But I do believe that following the model uh, that we've seen uh, in, in other fields of medicine, uh, towards personalized medicine, towards immunotherapy, uh, maybe the pressure mm. of this um, epidemic and some creative economic uh, tools uh, to boost uh, antibiotic research investment like the Carbex Accelerator or well, incentivize companies uh, post-market like the well, Pasteur I, I, I'm going to have to leave it right there because uh, we're Perfect. running out of time. We've reached... Reach the end of the segment. Dr. Victor Nuze and Dr. Eddie Stenyum, thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Ira. Thanks for having us. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios.